Oh, Pastor, you read. <laughs> I'll read. <laughs> if you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Uh, we're going to quickly end, uh, I mean, we've just ended the series in Joseph and um, Jacob, and we will move into another series on life in Hong Kong. But we wanted to pause in between the two series um, and read about a prayer uh, for a church that uh, Paul prays. So this is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and in his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, yes, once again, um, we want to take a pause uh, between the two uh, preaching series um, and uh, go through one of the prayers that Paul prays for the church. And I think I'm struck by how different it is uh, from the prayers that we normally pray for ourselves. Um, but as it is prayer, um, uh, let's pray that, that, that God will speak to us uh, this morning as we come to this text. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks that your word is powerful, that it, is, it speaks its living and active word. And we pray that you'll use the, these words to shape um, our individual lives, but also our life as a church together. Uh, that we might, in everything that we do, we might bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I wanted to start out with this question. What makes a person Christian? What are the basics of Christianity? I wanted to start out with this questions because these questions because Paul gives us a summary of it, I think, in verse 15. But also because I think we are a church, as a Shatin church, as I look back in our life, I think we're a church that does the basics fairly well. But I am praying, like Paul did for the Ephesians church, uh, that we go beyond the basics, that we build on the foundations. That's what today's text is about. But before we go to sort of find out what the next thing is, what the sort of the, the next level, the master class, let's say, uh, let's review the basics, what he says about the Christian faith in verse 15. So what are the basics? Paul, in this letter, is writing to a whole bunch of people that he's never seen. Uh, he hasn't met them yet, but he considers them a Christian, Christians. How, how does he know that they're a Christian? 
He says he's heard of their two things. He's heard of them. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. So two things, faith in the Lord Jesus and the love for all the saints. These are the basics of the Christian faith. Because I've heard of these two things, I, I, I give thanks for you and I pray for you, he says. Faith in the Lord Jesus makes us Christian, verse uh, 15. But if you go back, if you have your Bibles open, take a look at what it says in verse 7. That summarizes what this means. Chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Faith in the Lord Jesus means more than this, but it's not less than this. It is our redemption in him. It's our belief in Christ Jesus and what he has done for us and how he has saved us. At the heart of the faith in Jesus is this, that it has to come with this, the knowledge that we are sinners. You know, we love talking about God's love for us and how great we are in God's eyes. But actually, this is the message that we need to tell people, that we are sinners in dire need of God's grace. This is the message that people need to hear. Sometimes people don't know this, that they are sinners in need of God's grace, that we have rebelled against Him, even though we, have, we owe Him everything. If we honestly search ourselves... If we're honest with ourselves and search our hearts, we know that we're not good people. That we know that there is, there are things in our hearts that are that that um, that, that, that anger God, that we rebel against Him again and again, even though He has been so good to us. But the gospel is that it doesn't just end there. It points to our sin and God's holiness, but then it also says that God did not treat us as we deserve, as our sins deserve. Because he sent his son to die for us. That in him we have redemption through his blood. Our sins are forgiven because of the riches of his grace. Faith in the Lord Jesus means that we believe in the work of Christ's salvation. Not on our own righteousness, but a salvation through faith in, in Christ. That's what makes us Christians. But we often judge ourselves and other people by what we do, don't we? Ah, he can't be a Christian because he's done this. She can't be a Christian because she can't possibly be a Christian and do that. We say things like this. Now, I can understand why we do it, and I do it myself. Uh, We do it because we believe that our belief should dictate how how we live. They're tied, after all. But at the same time, at the same time, we have to recognize that that tie, the, the relationship between what we believe and what we do, is not perfect. And you know that. You know that because you see it in yourselves. We know that because we see it around us. We believe things, but our actions, it, it takes time for us to catch up. This is why I think the Old and the New Testament, especially in the New Testament, the, the, the message of the metaphor of slavery is so helpful. If you have been a slave all your life, and one day you receive the news that now you are free, that you're no longer a slave, do you think you would know exactly how to behave like a free person? Probably not. You still have the same fears. You still have the same habits. You still have the same worries. Slowly... Uh, they're chipped away. Slowly you're changed. But the inconsistencies but, but between what you know and how you act will remain there. The fact that you are a free person, 
that will need to sink in over time. But that's the thing. What makes us Christian is not the pace with which we change, how much we have changed, but it is belief in Jesus. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's what makes us Christian. The second sign, basic sign, uh, that we become a Christian is Christian love. Love for all the saints. After, Je- after Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he says, Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love uh, one another. John thirteen thirty four. Because we have been loved by God in this way, through Christ, we become a people who love each other. As what Paul says, that he has heard about the Ephesians church, your faith in Jesus and your love for all the saints. Love towards all the saints. That's how he knows that they're Christian. But notice it doesn't say love for some of the saints. This love isn't selective. It doesn't say, I've heard of your faith um, and your love for, uh, your love for other saints who are like you, who come from the same cultural or educational background or share the same hobbies or those who talk and think like you. He doesn't say, love for some of the saints. Anyone can love some people. Anyone can love people who are like you, like them. But it is difficult to love people who are different from us. In fact, we tend to despise or look down on people who are not like us. Part of this, I think, is Hong Kong. Hong Kong, we spend our lives trying to distinguish ourselves from other people, to try to stand out by working hard, going to good schools, getting good jobs, buying a house in a nice area, clothes uh, that we wear, handbags that we carry, cars that we drive, that sort of thing. Even going to church, we want to do good things. We want to stand out from other people. And we are in the habit, as we are in the habit of trying to separate ourselves, distinguish ourselves, it's hard not to look down on the people who haven't achieved in the same way. But you see, faith in Jesus erases all those distinctions. It says uh, that these things don't matter much anymore. Knowing Christ puts all of us on the same level ground. Sinners in need of God's mercy. Beggars begging for bread. That is who we are at the foot of the cross. None of us stand out. All of us receive our core identity from there. Sinners saved by the love of Christ. One of the signs that the gospel has been instilled in us is that we don't find these distinctions meaningful anymore because of who we are, our self-worth, how we see ourselves is primarily defined by our relationship with Christ. That's how we see ourselves. That's how we see others, sinners, saved by God's grace. Uh, In preparation to this, I listened to one of the uh, Tim Keller's sermons, and I just love how he put it here. He says, when you meet other Christians who are utterly different than you socially, economically, racially, culturally, vocationally, you find yourself showing them respect, listening humbly, humbly to them, serving them, when you find yourself becoming deep friends with people who in the past you never, ever, ever would have given the time of the day. You know that you're not just a religious person. You've become a Christian. That's what love for all the saints mean. Like I said, I think we do this in Shatin Church reasonably well. Faith in Jesus, knowing that our salvation comes from belief in Jesus Christ, trusting in Christ. Love for all the saints. Some of you are very successful by worldly standards, and some of you are not. We come from all sorts of backgrounds, 
But we are a church that at least tries, I think, to love each other. Um, I see that especially in some of the links groups in the past, in the past couple of years. I can think of at least one links group where I think, you know, these people would have never spent time with each other in this way. But in the past three years, this group met together, um, praying, studying, listening to each other, taking care of each other, loving one another. All sorts of different people in that group. They came together, love for all the saints. And I hope one of the reasons why I'm constantly about the small groups is because unless you belong to a small group and learn to love each other in this way, all this is just a theory, isn't it? You then get to just be around people who are exactly like you, who you find easy to love. Well, that's not what church is about. That's not, 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 what, that's not what growth is about. Church is group of people mixed in, all sorts of people coming together and growing in love for each other. Love for all the saints. These are Christian basics. And for that reason, Paul says he gives thanks for faith in Christ Jesus, love for all the saints. But then he says he's praying for more. He's praying for more. Faith and love are great foundations to build on, but there is more, and he wants them to go beyond the basics. Christian life has even more to offer. So what does he pray for? Take a look at uh, what he prays for, verse 17 and 18. He prays that God would send the Holy Spirit, opening the eyes of the heart, so that you may know, they may know, uh, know God and understand the benefits of knowing God. Essentially, he prays that they may know what they have already in the gospel. Often, we put faith and reason uh, in opposition to each other. Commenting on this passage, passage John Stott uh, writes, It's commonly assumed that faith and reason are incompatible. This is not so. The two are never contrasted in the scripture. As if we had to choose between them. Faith goes beyond reason, but rests on it. Knowledge is the ladder by which faith climbs higher, the springboard from which it leaps further. You see, faith and knowledge are related. More you know, more you can trust. That's why Paul prays that they might know more. As they climb higher in knowledge, in Sot's words, we can leap further. So he prays that the Ephesian church would know the truth of the gospel more and more, that they might come to realize what they have more and more. And as we go to two services, as we grow in number, this too is our prayer. It must be our prayer that we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we may live radically in faith. They are related. Faith rests on knowledge. So Paul prays that we would come to know God more and more. And let's see exactly what Paul says, what he wants us to know in verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The hope. He wants us to know the hope to which God has called us better. And I, I think this is a great thing. If you think about what hope is, the hope is future-oriented, isn't it? Knowing the hope means that he's praying that we would come to trust what God has revealed to us about the future, what is to come in the future. 
You know, in times like this, I thought about just celebrating the past, what God has done uh, in the past 24 years in the life of Shatin Church. God has done great things in, in anniversaries and, and things like that, uh, anniversary of, of a church. God, God's faithfulness in the past 25 years, uh, past 50 years, past 100 years or whatever, we look to the past. And there, it's a great thing to celebrate what God has done for us in the past. In the same way, we also look to the Scripture to see what God has done for us in the past, how God has saved us um, in Jesus Christ, and what God has done in the Old Testament. And we celebrate those things because those things become the basics, uh, uh, basis of our faith. But Scripture, if you read it carefully, isn't just about the past. It's also about the future. It's future-oriented. But we sometimes get bogged down, actually, on the past. And actually, um, not just the past, but we often get overwhelmed by the present, don't we? Often the biggest thing that uh, we pray about, or we're praying about, is our present situation. The problems that we're facing today. Um, you know, we've been praying in the prayer meeting as well. You know, we're going to two services. We need more volunteers. God, send us more volunteers, that sort of thing. Or maybe the problems that you might be facing is how you feel today. How your health is failing. Your children are not doing well in school or whatever. Present oh, often overwhelms our vision. So we want God to come and fix our problems today. Now, in the present, we're all about health and prosperity now. Comfort now, satisfaction now, God's power and presence now, today. But the Christian faith is essentially oriented towards the future. Christians are people who are always forward-looking. One commentator defined faith as this, faith, um, a hope as this, faith standing on a tiptoe. I love that imagery. Faith standing on a tiptoe. You know what's to come, and you're looking forward to the future. You see, God has revealed to us the future. He tells us that even though we suffer now, even though we live in this sinful world and sinful bodies now, it will not always be this way. The new creation will come. God will wipe the tears from our eyes. Our suffering and aching bodies will be healed, if not now, in the future completely. That is the future hope that he has revealed to us. Death that we face. It will not be always this way. Death will be no more when Jesus comes back. The world that is lost in the present or often stuck in the past, we Christians must be tilted towards the future and remind people that there is a judgment, that there is a new creation that's coming, there is a transformation of the whole world that is coming in the future. And it's only then, when our vision is set on the future, our present is transformed. A Christian whose life is tilted toward the future invests in the future kingdom in how she uses her time. She shares the good news of Jesus Christ with others because she knows that that is the real treasure that will last forever. The way that she mourns um, is different too. When a family member dies, when a Christian member dies, there is sadness. There is um, the, the sadness of death, but we know that there is a hope that sustains that grieving. The quality of grief is different because there is a hope that, that knows that she will rise again. The way that she spends money, not on the toys of the present, but she gives away to the needy. When she's going through all sorts of sufferings, difficulties in life, 
sickness, lost investment, lost job, lost job. She endures because she knows that this is just momentary, that she will receive inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. It's tilt towards that future that makes all that difference. In a world that knows no time except present, Christians must remind people about the future that is coming. So do you know this hope? Is your life tilted towards the future or lost, stuck in the past or overwhelmed by the present? Think about what you've been praying for. What sort of things are you praying for? Is it the same thing that Paul's praying for for the church? That we, know, we may know this hope better. Of course, I think one of the reasons why we don't pray about this is because it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe in the future hope, in the whole new earth, in the new heaven coming, God renewing this whole place again, and death being completely over, overcome. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe because we don't realize how great God's power is. And that's the prayer. That's the third prayer. Um, that's the second part of uh, Paul's prayer here. That we would believe, we would know this power better. Verse 19. That we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. This power, he tells us in verse 20, raised us. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. If you think about that, you then come to realize how incomparable this power is from anything else. What power do you know that can raise the dead? From the very beginning of humanity, we have been overcome by death. There was nothing that can overcome the, the power of death. We're all trapped in death, bondage to death. Everyone in this world has died. But God's power raised Jesus from the dead. Peter preached that famous sermon after the Pentecost uh, in chapter 2 of Acts. He says that, that it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. It was impossible because Christ cannot be overcome by death. He holds a different kind of power than the power that we can imagine. As he defeated death, we know that it's lost its sting. Christians no longer have to fear death. Some die even great in anticipation because we know that not only we will see our maker and our creator and our redeemer, but because we also know that the next time we open our eyes, it will be in the, new in the glories of the new creation, that God will create this whole thing again. We believe in the power of the resurrection. We have the glorious new bodies. We will have the glorious new bodies. Do you know and trust in that power to be working in you? And look where um, Christ seats, uh, is seated now in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come, God put all things under his feet. Life center of gravity is not earth. It's in the heavenly realm with God. There's no power that Christ does not have, no authority that's beyond his if you think about where the, who makes decisions, the command center for the whole world is not, um, it, it's not in the peak in Hong Kong, it's not in Beijing, it's not in the White House in D.C. It is in heaven where Christ is seated. That's where he determines history. 
And then if you look at uh, what this means for us, he goes on to say that God has put Christ, who holds this power over all things, as the head of the church. That's an astonishing thing. Why the church? Because the power that he has for all, over all things, he's going to use for the benefit of the church. That's what that means. This is why Paul says, I'm praying for you to know this power so you can live confidently in this power. That God is working all things for the good of the church, for all of us. Christ is the head over church. He will direct the future of the, uh, of the church with his immeasurable power towards the hope to which, to which he has called us. We're going to go through uncertain times in the future, I'm sure. Perhaps there will be another financial meltdown, who knows? Uh, unexpected trials, even tragedies that might face us. But we can be confident that it is Christ who is in charge over this church. As we move towards two services, as we make changes, as we face uncertain future, because Christ who fills the universe is the head over this church, we can make these changes confidently. It's great comfort to me that as I think about this, uh, as I make decisions, as we make decisions as a church committee, that we're not, I'm, I'm so glad that I'm not in charge, that God is in charge, that Christ is in charge, because that means that all that power is available for this church, for the growth of this church. And I want you to think of, uh, just take a moment to think of the implications now for you. How would your life change if you knew this hope for the future more and more? How would your life change if you became certain of the future hope? How would your life change if you knew that all this power that Christ has is working, using it for us, the church? How would you live differently And finally, as we close, think about what you've been praying for. What have you been praying for? Is it just for the worries of the present? Are we stuck there? Do we know God's hope and power? Because we have to pray. After all, this whole thing was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians church. We won't be able to live a life that's rooted in faith in Jesus and loving each other unless we pray. We won't be able to live that life that's tilted towards the hope of the future unless we pray. And the knowledge and confidence in the power of God won't come. Uh, we won't know it unless we pray. And God sends the Spirit, opens our eyes and hearts so we can know Him better. And as we learn, as we learn to rest on this knowledge in faith, will take great leaps as individuals and as a church together. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. His death on the cross and his resurrection. We thank you that it is our faith in him, our trust in your son, Jesus, that saves us. And thank you so much for making us a church that trusts in your Son and helping us to be a church that loves each other. But Lord, we want to pray for more. 
Help us not to be just stuck on the past. Help us not to be overwhelmed with the worries of the present. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us better. Help us to know the power that you have working in each one of us and working in this church better. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you, that we may live a life of faith as we take steps um, in the future. And as we do that, may all glory and honor go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.